Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the Board of Directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Welcome everyone to the See You in Court podcast. Today we have a treasured guest with us, Congressman George Buddy Darden. And uh, I and Lester Tate will be talking to uh, Buddy about his experience in the law and in Congress uh, and what he's doing today. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about uh, George Buddy Darden. He is now with the law firm Pope McLamory, joined that firm in February 2018, where he became a member of the Kia Tam False Claims Practice. He focuses on the areas of significant fraud, class actions, tort cases, and white-collar matters. Uh, He was first elected district attorney for Cobb County in 1972 and next elected to the Georgia State House of Representatives in 1983. He was elected in a special election as a representative to the United States Congress, Congress, where he served five additional terms. After Congress, Darden served as a delegate to the Democratic National Conventions in 1996, 2000, and 2004, and was appointed by President Clinton to serve as a member of the Board of Directors of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Mr. Darden later served as the chairman of the Judicial Nominating Commission during the administration of Governor Roy Barnes and served on numerous boards, including the Board of Trustees for LaGrange College. Beginning in 2009, he chaired the Judicial Selection Committee in Georgia for the Obama administration. From 1995 until joining Pope McLamory, Buddy was a partner with Long Aldridge and its successor firms, now Denton's. In 2010, he received the Tradition of Excellence Award from the State Bar of Georgia. Buddy and his wife Lillian live in Marietta and are celebrating their 50th year of marriage this year. They are the parents of two adult children and have five grandchildren. And Buddy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Robin. It's great to be here with you and Lester. The only correction I would make yep. is that I am celebrating my 52nd. 52nd. Uh, year of being married, but I think my wife would like for me to make that correction. But <laughs> thank you for having me on today. It's just an honor to be here with you and Lester. And Lester, I know that um, you have a special relationship with Buddy, and can you tell our listeners about that? I, I absolutely can. Uh, I am uh, uh, proud to claim uh, Buddy Darden as my mentor. Of, of uh, I don't have as exact account as Lillian might have because we didn't have a ceremony, but at least going back to the time, I think I was, I think I was 22 and, and Buddy was 40 when he got elected to Congress. And in uh, uh, a moment of insanity, I think he hired me as his press secretary. And he has been my friend and mentor and, and really just like a, a father figure to me, uh, although he's not that much older than me since then. And uh, one of the reasons that I went in, uh, went on to go to law school and practice law after I, after I left working for him there. So it's just a real thrill uh, to have him on today. 
And uh, I think I'd like to start out by, by asking you, uh, buddy, you know, you've spent a good portion of your life, uh, your, your career in politics, and a good portion practicing law. And, you know, to most of the general public, they, they think a politician and a lawyer are the exact same things. And uh, I, I, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about your experience in politics and your experience in law, how they're similar and, and maybe how they're dissimilar sometimes. Well, that's, you make a good point. However, the lawyers call me a politician and the politicians call me a lawyer. So you can tell that uh, I, uh, both uh, categories, uh, I consider myself a part of. But I don't know any profession that blends better with government uh, than the law. And I don't know any, any profession that Congress and the members of the legislature and others ought to have other than practicing law. I think it's a great background because it teaches you how to think it teaches you how to deduce. It teaches you how to come up with solutions to problems. And a legislative solution is sometimes a lot better than uh, a judicial solution. And so going back and forth between the two disciplines, I think, has uh, been a great experience for me. And I've always believed that uh, everybody ought to have some knowledge of the law who participates in, in government. Some people say that We've got too many lawyers uh, in the legislature or in Congress. I don't think we have nearly enough because they wouldn't pass some of those ridiculous laws that they do from time to time if they knew a little bit about the law. Buddy, can you talk to us a little bit about what motivated you to get involved in politics and to run for office originally? Robin, I had an extraordinary opportunity when I was 19 years old I was working at Rock Eagle 4-H Center, and the 4-H Foundation was looking for some young men to send to Washington to serve as patronage appointees for the Honorable Richard B. Russell. And so at the age of 19, my friend Mel Wells and I from Watkinsville, Georgia, left Rock Eagle 4-H Camp to go to Washington, D.C. And uh, we worked at that time under the direction of the staff and uh, we were just honored to be a part of the team of Richard B. Russell in Washington. He was by far the most prominent senator in all of the United States. And we were just proud to be able to carry his briefcase or run his errands or fold his mail and do whatever he asked us to do. And so that's when I first really became exposed to politics, even though I had been a page in the Georgia General Assembly back when. I was in the, in the seventh grade, but my experience in Washington and being able to see firsthand the workings of our government and to see the people who were involved in our government. And by the way, so many of them were lawyers and I learned right quick that uh, it would help if you knew something about the law. I had so many wonderful experiences in Washington, but one of them I'll tell you more about some other time in greater detail. But I met and shook hands with John F. Kennedy. And uh, it's one thing that uh, President Clinton and I have in common, even though I'm not able to document it like he is. That's good. That's that, wonderful. That, that's great. So, uh, so you came back and, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm a tech man. I remember when I worked for you, I used to 
uh, tell you I was going to talk your son George into going to Georgia Tech, which he in fact did, and then went to the University of Georgia too. But uh, I know you're a double dog. And uh, can you tell us what it was like going through law school and then uh, after you came out and started practicing, how you, how you started your practice uh, uh, after graduating from the University of Georgia Law School? Well, surprisingly, after transferring uh, from two different universities, North Georgia College and then George Washington University, where I attended when I was in D.C., I actually somehow picked up hours. And so when I got to the University of Georgia, I found out that after one year, I would be able to go to law school. And back in those days, we had a three-and-three three program. So I took uh, an overload of, of undergraduate courses and did pretty well. I did a lot better in undergraduate school than I did in law school, I might add. But anyway, uh, after one year, I was able to go to the University of Georgia Law School. And after one year in law school, I was awarded my uh, undergraduate degree. And two years later, I graduated. During that time, I'd mentioned President Kennedy before. Um, during that time, on my 20th birthday, on November 22nd, uh, 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, which was a defining moment for our generation. But I had a great time at the University of Georgia, made so many friends. I was involved in campus politics as a result of that. I held office on this campus, and I even ran and was elected to student body president. So I had a great time there. I thought I was really doing big things and almost flunked out of law school doing it. But uh, I had a great time at the University of Georgia being involved in campus politics. And also while I was there, I was honored by our local congressman, Robert Stevens, Jr., who um, made me his campaign manager in 1966. So I was very involved and became very involved in state and local politics while I was still at University of Georgia and in, on campus. And we never worried about getting a job uh, back, back, in, back in those days. We got out of law school, there were jobs waiting for us. And so my good friend and mentor, Jasper Dorsey, arranged for me to go to Cobb County and they hired me sight unseen as the first full-time assistant district attorney. And uh, so, and and you were district attorney, uh, I think, for, you, know, you ran for district attorney and were district attorney for four years, and then you went private practice. And I think I've got this right, but but you've been a solo practitioner. And then you were also at Denton's, which I think touts itself as the world's largest law firm. And so you've, you've sort of been at both ends of the spectrum uh, with regard to, to, to the scenarios in which law is practiced. So how, yes, how, how are those different for, for folks listening who, who, who may, not have ever, may not even be a lawyer? Well, first of all, as you say, you couldn't have a more a strong contrast between being a sole practitioner and being, being a member or a partner in the largest law firm in the world. But I learned a whole lot more as a sole practitioner than I did when I was, was uh, at Denton's. I par more or less parachuted into the big firm, and I never had to go through the indignities that so many of these young associates have to do. But one thing about when you're practicing by yourself is that every dime that is generated is generated in fees that you earn, and consequently, every expenditure that's made 
that you approve and you and you make. So you learn some valuable lessons about law firm management and about cutting uh, corners with expenses and learning and learning the business of practicing law. And I think the lessons I learned practicing law by myself are greater than the ones that I learned in being with big firms because practicing law, you always had to worry about keeping expenses down and doing your best collecting your fees. That was always a lesson that all of us have, have had practicing law is that it doesn't do any good. You can be the greatest lawyer in the world, but if you can't collect your fees, you'll go, you'll go broke. But in the big firms, it's a totally different situation. Uh, we've seen the corporatization of, of the law practice over the years. And Denton's the people were good to me. And I had a great 22 years at Long, Aldridge, and Norman and its successor firms, uh, which ended up with Denton. But at the same, but at the same time, as a different mindset. I started off, by the way, um, with Long, Aldridge, and Norman, which became Denton's. It was a much smaller firm, and the culture was very, very, very different than it was than it was when I left. This is not to be a criticism of anybody, but just to tell you how it was. I want to mention one thing you mentioned about being district attorney. Uh, I was elected at age uh, 28 when I was district attorney of Cobb County. Of course, it wasn't near quite as, as large as it is then, and I'd been assistant DA, and everybody kept leaving the office, and so... I told the boss one time I was leaving. He says, well, you ought to stay and run because I'm not going to run again. So I ran to succeed my boss, Ben Smith Sr., uh, in the fall of 1972. I had Republican opposition. I had a close race, but I won. So I was elected at age 28 and then turned 29 uh, before I took office. And at the time, I was so proud because I was the youngest district attorney in the state of Georgia at the time, and I used to tout that. But four years later, and a very tough, tough election later, I was the youngest ex-district attorney <laughs> in the entire entire uh, state. So you learn things, you learn things not only by your successes, but even more so by your failures. Buddy, you've, you've had a, still practicing law, you were admitted to the State Bar of Georgia in 1968, by my calculation, that's about 52 years practicing law. Um, you've been a government lawyer. You've been a private lawyer. You've been a corporate lawyer. Uh, done pretty much any type of law. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, what your favorite type of law was or, or your favorite type of case, something you really enjoyed about practicing law? Sure. But before I do, I want to just, just mention that uh, I've had my ups and I've had my downs, and people come to me and say, oh, Congressman Dard, you had a great career. Tell us uh, how you planned this out and how you prepared for it. Well, Robin, just to be honest with you, uh, <laughs> things just happened, and I didn't plan anything. Uh, things just came along, and I think the key to it is maybe being pre prepared to take the opportunity and also to be able to take some chances. And I know as a trial lawyer, you've taken a lot of chances in your, in your day, and you've just got to be able sometimes to get out there on faith. And so many times uh, I've had the benefit, though, of, a, of supportive friends and family, and I think that's, that's carried me a long way. But uh, someone said one time I was kind of like a football player that walked on at the University of Georgia. 
and that and that that guy's gone further with least ability than anybody I've ever known. And and uh, that might be that might be uh, that might be uh, said said in my case. But what I enjoyed the most uh, during my time practicing law, and unfortunately, it didn't come out nearly as often as as I like practicing law. But the ability to actually help someone and make a difference in their lives. Lots of times it's all about money and it's all about um, ego and, and it's about um, winning and losing. But more importantly like that, every now and then, and it doesn't happen that often, but you can feel you have a case that makes a significant difference, not only in, in uh, that person's life, but sometimes to the law in general. And so, um, I can I can probably count those times on my on my two fingers when that experience has happened. But there's nothing more rewarding and nothing nothing better than to than to have made a difference in someone's lives and relieve their pain and suffering. I definitely agree. That's uh, I think that's one of the reasons I became a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer instead of working for a big firm is that I wanted that one-on-one -on -one connection with uh, average, everyday, normal people walking around Georgia. I wanted that well, connection. Robin, let me tell you a little bit about a niche I had at a big firm because I was very different from most of the people at the, at the big firms. And uh, I wanted to do outside things. And my firm gave me a platform to do things like be the chairman of the, of the um, Judicial Nominating Commission. It gave me the leeway and the freedom to uh, work on outside things which were for the benefit of the firm. And I was always an outside guy where the firm was concerned. But the niche I had and I earned over at Long Aldridge and Norman and then to the success of firms is that you got to have somebody in the firm who knows a little bit about a lot of different things. And so I was kind of the go-to when somebody's um, brother needed a divorce up in Cobb County, let's find him a lawyer. Or you got a young associate coming down I-75, gets caught doing 115 miles an hour. And, um, you have a situation where maybe a partner is going through, going through the um, different security provisions there at the airport, and uh, suddenly they find a gun that he didn't realize that uh, he had. And I could go on and on and on, but uh, all, all, the, all those are just hypotheticals, right, buddy? <laughs> oh, absolutely, just totally <laughs> hypothetical. But just in case those situations came up, <clears throat> I became the unofficial now, they wouldn't dare call me the firm counsel because uh, about giving legal opinions and, 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 and that kind of thing. But I became the guy who, who was the go-to guy. Uh, and I, so I found my niche. And when you're practicing with that many lawyers, there's something always, always going on. I know we'll forget a situation one time where we had a young associate who was about to get fired because they, uh, case that he had somehow inherited wasn't going very well and we had decided that we wanted to get get from outside of the case we wanted to we wanted to withdraw from the case and and didn't know how to how to do it uh he and i got in the car and went down to an area a good bit south south of atlanta uh to see the 
judge about it. And as we're coming around the corner, going into the, about to go in the courthouse, we see the judge out there talking on his phone in his pickup truck. And he and I had been at Georgia together and, uh, we waved and knowledge and, and uh, he said, what are you doing here, buddy? I said, well, we come to see you. We need to withdraw from, the, withdraw from a case. He says, okay, uh, let me see it. So he signed the order right there in his truck. Uh, as he was talking on the phone, uh, we took it inside and that young associate says, I saved his job. I'm not sure I did, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think he was in as bad a trouble as he thought, but but knowing people and, and, and knowing other lawyers, I think it's so important. And the collegiality of our profession, sometimes I, I worry about. But at the same time, I love lawyers and love knowing lawyers. And if you know someone, it's a whole lot easier to get along with them and do business with them than someone um, that's, that you don't know. Because the adversarial system is tough enough already. And the last thing you need to do is be in some constant fuss and fight with somebody what's so, what's your what's your experience with collegiality in the last 50 years what have you observed do you think it's not the practice of law has become less collegial or stayed same more what 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 are your thoughts well that's hard hard to say because when i started out in Cobb county i was probably around the 50th lawyer uh out here and now our local bar has more than uh, a thousand, a thousand people in in the bar. So obviously, not everybody knows everybody. But in those days, I'll be candid with you. Uh, we looked after each other as lawyers, not ever to the detriment of our client. But at the same time, uh, if a lawyer was in a bind, you didn't try to take unfair advantage of him or her. I say him because it was about ninety nine percent hims at the time. But at the same time, um, lawyers kind of looked after each other, covered for each other. And uh, sometimes we would make those inevitable mistakes and miss those deadlines or some other, some other type of thing that can happen to you. And we looked after each other. However, now as we have so many more lawyers uh, and you have, to cover, you have to cover your bases a whole lot more carefully. And some of the things that we did back in, back in those days, uh, without thinking about it, would subject us to disbarment these days. So uh, it's uh, lawyers generally uh, today are a lot more uh, tough on, on each other and hold each other to a very, very harsh standard sometimes. And I think I always had, I always had the um, philosophy, and I still try to do it, that if I can uh, make a concession to a lawyer or accommodation to another lawyer, and it doesn't prejudice my case, uh, I'll do that. I'll do that because I like to have always tried to treat people the way that I'd like to be treated. That might sound simplistic, but uh, it works, I promise you. And uh, you can really disarm sometimes a very hostile adversary. Not always, not always, but in many, Generally speaking, most people still like to um, get along and realize that you can do business a whole lot better getting along. So, you know, I've tried about about a hundred jury trials. Uh, Robin's tried a gazillion jury trials, 
you've probably tried as much as both of us, even though you spent 10 years in Congress where you weren't trying any. Uh, how has how has that changed over the years? It seems to me that we don't we don't see very many we don't see as many jury trials, and we see a lot of big firms that like to litigate, but that they never really end up uh, taking it to the taking it to six or eight in federal court or twelve in uh, in state court uh, for for a jury to make a determination. It's not unusual, Lester, for a person to be admitted to be admitted to a litigation department as a partner in a big firm who's never taken a deposition uh, by himself or herself, much less tried a case. But you need to start trying cases, in my opinion, when you're young, because the juries are somewhat sympathetic to young, inexperienced lawyers and, and really always try to give you a break. I know when I started off, the day I was admitted to the bar, I uh, prosecuted a case against three uh, young African-American men uh, in, their, in their team. They were all charged with public company in uh, Cobb County, and I, I tried it, and they were unrepresented. And, um, and I, try, I tried the case, and the uh, jury uh, acquitted all three of them, and no lawyer even on the other side. I'm saying this, I'm saying this to say that uh, when you're young, you need to get your experience and make your mistakes and learn from your mistakes. And so I was very fortunate to be in the DA's office and move, moved on up uh, from the misdemeanor court to the felony court. And so I had a chance, I had a chance to try uh, some cases that really didn't matter uh, before I was in a position to try cases that, that did matter. And so um, I, I was able to get that experience, but regrettably, so many lawyers now don't have the experience of trying those cases. And no, we'll forget if I can share an experience with you. Um, we had this uh, big condemnation case in the in the firm one time, and and uh, it was mediated a couple of times, and and uh, had to do with the the taking of the of the land for the airport in Paulding County, and uh, and it was being negotiated, and we it was mediated a couple of times, and all the file must have been a foot uh, thick. Uh, from both sides and everything like that. But then it turns out that finally, um, one Friday afternoon, uh, it was on the trial calendar for about the 10th time, the case was going to have to be tried. And nobody there had ever tried a condemnation case. So they dust, they, they dust, dust me off a little bit and clean me up, <laughs> send me out to Pauley County. And uh, I tried the case. I tried, I tried the case. And so uh, regrettably, uh, uh, the young lawyers don't get the experience that, that they need, especially in the, in the big firms. And, and you've heard this expression before, trying a case like riding a bicycle. You know, once, you, once you've done it, uh, uh, you can stay away a long time, and it comes back to you. And, this, and by trying a case, I'm not saying that I was the greatest by, by any means, but, but you know what you're doing, and you achieve a certain level of comfort and confidence in, in, in the courtroom. I'm not sure if y'all saw my cousin Benny, which has got to be one of the great movers of all time. And uh, you had Joe Petty up there about to give his opening statement, and the, the lawyer got up who had never tried a case defending those guys who were 
who were charged with capital felony. And he got up before the jury and was so nervous and shaking and couldn't say anything and finally just, just sat down. And, and I, can, I can see how that could happen to lawyers these days who don't get the experience of trying cases. So I try to encourage, I, when I was at the big firm, I did everything I could to encourage young lawyers to, to uh, take a case and, and take it up and try it or appeal it or do something where you, where you get out because you, you've, got, you've got to actually try a case before you understand what, what, um, what it's all about. So what, one of the other things you've been very involved with, both on the state level and totally on, the, uh, on the national level, is uh, judicial selection. Uh, because you were chair of the Judicial Nominating Commission for Governor Barnes, and then you were on the uh, committee that evaluated judicial applicants for the uh, federal courts. Uh, how do you think judges have changed over the years and what you need to be to be a judge? Because, uh, you know, it seems to me at least that there are a lot of people being picked for judicial office nowadays who uh, really have never seen the inside of a courtroom before. Well, Les, let me start off by saying I've got the greatest respect for the judiciary, and I think all lawyers ought to have a healthy respect for the, for the judiciary. And uh, I never aspired to be a judge, not because uh, I didn't have the greatest respect for them, but some people are cut out to be judges and some aren't. And there was probably, probably a time, I'm not saying I could have been a judge, but there was probably a time or two if I'd taken uh, one, one path instead of the other, uh, I might have had an opportunity to be on the bench. But that never appealed to me. But again, I had the greatest respect for, for judges. And, and consequently, I always wanted the best possible people to be uh, on, on the bench. And again, this is just something I kind of happened into. Um, as you know, um, when I was district attorney, briefly, Roy Barnes was one of my assistant DAs. We were assistant DAs together then. He helped me get elected, and then he uh, worked in our office for a while. So we stayed friends, and, and we think a lot alike about judges. So he asked me to handle, handle the JNC for him. And as a result of that, when President Obama was elected, the Georgia congressional delegation, Democratic um, delegation, um, asked me to chair the commission to make recommendations to them, which would go, go to the White House. But one thing you got to remember when you serve on these committees is you're not picking the judges. You're merely making recommendations and assisting the real authority. Some of these people get on these committees and, and think that they are a whole lot more important than they are, but, but it, it's merely our job to screen the, the applicants. Um, I know I uh, had a discussion with Roy Barnes about who we ought to recommend. I knew where his mind was and, and what causes he looked for. And the same thing when we, when we did the federal judges. But let me point this out. Um, I think, one, a, a lot of people, a whole lot of people qualified to be judged. You've always heard the expression that Senator Tamage said about picking judges is, is that once you pick a judge, you make, you make um, 99 enemies and one ingrate because the guy who, a woman who is selected thinks that obviously they're most qualified, otherwise they wouldn't have been, been elected or, or appointed. So, so um, 
what we did on the committees, I, I served both times, we looked for qualities that the judge ought to have, and then we let, of course, understood that the appointing authority uh, would, would, be, would be, be in charge. Uh, first of all, I think a, a judge needs to be a good lawyer, needs to be a good lawyer, needs to understand, know the law. And the second thing that comes just as close, if not more important, is judicial demeanor. You know, just like some, some uh, cops shouldn't be allowed to carry a gun, uh, some lawyers shouldn't be allowed to put on a robe because uh, it's heady, it's heady wine. And uh, sometimes uh, judges, judges uh, have a tendency to, to uh, have what we've all called robotics from time, from time to time. So I think you take a good lawyer and you have, and you have, um, have uh, the correct judicial demeanor I think, I think you've got a job. But now let me say this, in all due respect to my friends on the bench, uh, being a judge is not rocket science. It's uh, showing up on, up on time. It's uh, being courteous to all the parties involved. Sure, sometimes you'll have to bring the hammer down, but not, not, not very often. And it's, it's courtesy, it's demeanor, it's respect, not only for, for the state or the government, but also for the defendant and uh, his counsel and so forth. And, and I, think, I think I've seen some wonderful judicial examples uh, in my lifetime. I could go on and on and on about that, except, except to say that a lot of people who are not judges that, that are qualified to be, be judges. But sometimes um, you get to a cert certain point, uh, it becomes the moon and the stars all coming together at the right at, at, at the right time. But I've, I've had a wonderful opportunity to get to know a lot of judicial aspirants and a large number of whom have, have become judges. And I was pleased to just have a very small part of it. But let me emphasize emphasize to, to you and, and to Robin is that the people on these committees, um, they are helpful, but uh, by no means are they nearly so powerful as, as, uh, as uh, they are perceived to be uh, from, from time to time. Uh, you mentioned one, one thing I need to follow up on, and that is, that is this. And I had this discussion one time with my uh, dear friend, uh, Judge Harris Hines, and then subsequently later on, Justice Harris, Harris Hines. And we decried the fact that so many people come to the bench these days, especially the appellate bench, who have never tried a case or who have uh, either as a lawyer or a judge. And uh, I think to have a good appreciation of uh, what the trial judges go through and what the lawyers and the litigants go through, you need to have experience in the courtroom. I've always believed, I always believe that, and I still believe that this day. And regrettably, and this is not meant to in any way criticize any uh, specific individual, but uh, we, we have uh, too many people who have not had that experience, the day-to-day uh, experience of, of either trying cases as a judge or a lawyer. In fact, the best judges, in my opinion, have been those who who have been slapped around a little bit, little bit by judges uh, who were unreasonable in court 
and and uh, know what it's like. Or sometimes you come in, you've got you've got um, five cases in in three different courts, and uh, and every judge sometimes thinks that their court is the only one, you know, in operation, and all the others are subordinate <laughs> to it. So I could go on and on and on, except to say that that uh, I think the best judges are those who have had experience trying cases either as a judge or as a lawyer and hopefully both. Uh, buddy, I, I agree. And um, I used to at least, at least think that a, one of the criteria should be that before you become a judge, you, you've struck a jury because there's nothing like it. Um, and until you've done it, you don't know, even know, you don't even talk about it until you've done it. But now it just seems we do have so many, uh, what I would call appellate specialists who are just appellate lawyers. They've never struck a jury. They've never been face to face in a courtroom, you know, where the pressure is so intense, so different from any other place where you are. Where it, 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 there's nothing like it. Um, so that's always been one of my standards also. Um, and I, and I wanted to say you mentioned our, our mutual investors, all, all of our mutual friend, Justice Hines. Uh, I know being from Cobb County, y'all were probably strong friends, and he was a, a, a very close friend of mine and a mentor. And um, I was going to ask you, could you name a judge that you thought, you know, in your experience, is is kind of the role model for judges. Would you think Harris Hines would be one of those? Harris Hines would be one of those, but I want to point out someone after whom Harris Hines uh, gained his his experience and 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 the guy that he followed, uh, watching him and the way he tried cases, and that is the late uh, Justice Conley Ingram. Uh, Conley Ingram was perhaps the most accomplished judge I've, I've ever seen at the appellate and the trial level. A little thing or two about Conley. Uh, he was elected in his early 30s to the Superior Court of uh, Cobb County. Came out there and, as I said, swore me in uh, in 1968. Uh, he had children in school and uh, wanted to send them to college. And the judges in Cobb at that time made about $25,000 a year. So he decided to go back into private practice for a couple of years and make some money. Then, President, uh, then uh, Governor Carter was elected, and uh, Judge Ingram was very, very instrumental in his campaign. So he persuaded Conley, not the other way around, to go on to Georgia Supreme Court, where he served for a number of uh, years, maybe, maybe less than ten years, and then went back uh, to the practice of, of law over. Uh, what is now Austin Birds, it, it was Austin Miller and Gaines back then. But then, when Conley reached about age uh, 65, the normal retirement, he came back to Cobb County, served as a senior trial judge for more than 20 years, uh, active on the bench every day. And the great thing about Conley, Conley Ingram is both sides, when you got through, both sides thought they had won. Um, the only thing about it, though, if he started bragging on one lawyer too much, you knew the other. You, you knew that that lawyer's case was about to get thrown out. <laughs> but he had that. He had that ability to uh, to make everybody feel like they were welcome in, in court, and that they 
they were uh, special. And, and nobody ever left Connie Ingham's courtroom without feeling that they had not been, been uh, courteously dealt with. They used to say in Cobb County that um, Judge Luther Haynes could give somebody five years and they would cuss them the rest of their life. But uh, at the same time, Connie could give that same person a life sentence and everybody would thank him for his courtesy and, and for the way he treated everybody. So it's how you treat people. It, it's how you respect people. And, and uh, Connie Ingram, I would, I would cite above anybody I've ever known. And, and in all fairness to uh, Justice Hines, Connie Ingram was a model. Uh, that that uh, Justice Hines followed, and and I think we're both a better a better uh, state, and uh, and uh, at least in county and Cobb because of those two individuals. You, you, buddy, you had uh, uh, you know now you were talking about judicial selection and how it's not somebody that's the chairman of a committee or whatever. You're not uh, not the ultimate power source, but you know there's the old joke that uh, you know uh, a judge is. Uh, is a lawyer that had a governor for a friend. And uh, I, I, I think you told me a story about Conley Ingram uh, being offered a seat on the Georgia Court of Appeals before he was put on the Supreme Court. Uh, and, of course, now, you know, a lot of folks, you know, whatever the governor or the president or whoever might nominate you, uh, would say you wouldn't dare push back on it. But I, I, as I recall the story, Conley did push back just a little bit on being on the Court of Appeals. That's right. Uh, he said, he said, Jimmy, when you came to see me, uh, I didn't ask you if you wanted me to support you for Lieutenant governor. And, um, and consequently, consequently, uh, I'm at, I'm telling you, if you want me on the appellate court, I'll serve on the Supreme court and I, I'll be honored to do it, but, uh, I'm not going to take a, a, uh, court, which might be considered subordinate. Several people uh, from Cobb heard Conley tell that story over the years and tried the same thing, and uh, it didn't work. <laughs> Buddy, uh, it seems to me in in the last five, six years that there has been um, – more of an attack or, or degradation of the rule of law um, I, I, with this coronavirus going on it seems to be even worse um, but there seems to be incident after incident where the rule of law which our country was founded upon uh, is being attacked what, what, do you, what are your thoughts about that well I think it starts at the very top and I don't want to get overly political here, but I, I've got to admit, first of all, that I am, I am a yellow dog Democrat. I am unapologetic, unrepentant, and, and uh, at age, age 76, it's too late for me to consider changing. So uh, my mind and my opinions are pretty much set. But uh, I, do think, I do think that the example that we've seen, frankly, from the White House, and again, I apologize to my Republican friends. That's just my opinion. But the but uh, the it starts at the top, and uh, I think the example that we've had set in the current White House, where the courts have been criticized uh, because um, the president said he was Hispanic and that uh, 
and and the president was cracking down on on um, various various uh, groups and so forth on the immigration issue. And I could go on and on and on, but uh, I think I think that's been that's been a uh, a big part of it. And the other thing, and and I'll be very very candid too, is that the judges that are most respected are the judges who earn the respect. So it's not only up to up to um, the lawyers and the public to follow the law. It's up to the judges to uh, to carry out the law and to insist on the rule of law. So it's a two way street. It's a two way street between society and the judiciary. But uh, part of my frustration, frankly, has been at the highest levels of government, and I don't make any any apology for that. So, uh, what's a what, what's a, a a trial that you had a case that went all the way to trial that is uh, probably your most memorable one? Well, you always remember, Lester, the cases you lose, not the ones you win. Or uh, let's let's don't say winners and losers. The one in which uh, your your side carried carried the day and. Uh, had a lot of criminal cases, of course, as DA. In those days, the DA himself tried the major major cases in Cobb County. Uh, we didn't have uh, 40 assistants sit, sitting, sitting around there uh, working working on the file. In fact, uh, we, I've had situations where Roy Barnes and I were trying to case together is that uh, I'd be striking the jury and he'd be out talking to the witnesses for the first time and vice versa. So um, uh, there was a whole lot of lot of uh, flying by by the seat of your pants back 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 in back in those days. But I guess I guess um, looking looking back on the cases that uh, I've tried, um, I've had had a simple case one time down in Fulton County, where my client was an executive with Lockheed. Lockheed, uh, Georgia, and uh, Georgia Power Company, and his ex-wife, and uh, the full force of the state had come against him, along with Troutman Sanders, and the power company to uh, to prosecute him for um, using a device to keep from paying the current. had a had a bypass at his house, and he was he was uh, getting current it wasn't going through well, my pass on the meeting and, uh, exactly and, I, and they they came to court with uh all the troutman sanders lawyers with and uh judge beasley was trying the case as a trial who later on became on the court field and uh, we didn't have any defense we didn't have any, any defense but the only thing that i kept telling telling the uh judge and the jury over the objections of the state was he was going to lose his job if he was convicted, and um, and so he um, jury went out, came back about thirty minutes, and uh, and uh, they they uh, they said he's not guilty, and one of the ladies walked by uh, me as she was leaving. She says she says I'm not I'm glad he's not going to lose his job, and so uh, I know that was a simple thing. Uh, I've had cases with with big money involved i've had cases uh death penalty i prosecuted and obtained death penalties 
and and so forth. And uh, with matters a whole lot more serious, big money and um, and like I say, murder and so forth. But that little case always stands out out to me as uh, as one of the most satisfying things that ever happened. And Didn't it was he- nothing. I I don't even remember. I don't remember the guy who paid me. Didn't didn't he later end up on a jury in another case uh, that you were on? He he, he later later on ended up ended up on a jury up in up in Cobb County, and uh, he was a notorious Republican, by the way. And so I asked him if the jurors remember the Republican Party, and of course he raised his hand, and uh, the prosecutor smiled and uh, put him on the jury, and so I accepted him, <laughs> and he came back he came back with a as foreman of the jury with a verdict in our favor. So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> but oh, you can't make this stuff up, Lester, the things that can happen to you as, as a lawyer. And I promise if you plan it, uh, it doesn't work. It just, it just, just happens. And that's the great thing about trying cases is, is the things that, that, that can happen. I know we'll forget we had convicted this guy of murder up in uh, Cobb County and the jury went out to set the, sentence but it was an obvious we thought death penalty and there was a juror who came back and since the defendant didn't testify the jury turns out to get the juror was uh, not all there he was senility had set in but he was convinced that the trial wasn't over because the guy hadn't testified and so um, we finally worked it out we finally worked it out on a life sentence. But the things that can happen, I had a juror one time who was a lawyer, by the way, uh, die during the prosecution of, of the case. And uh, the next morning, there was an empty chair. And um, the judge said, what happened? And then juror number one, alternate juror number one, step up. Alternate juror number one stepped up, and it went right on but the things that can happen trying trying cases you think you've seen it all but even today things are happening that nobody ever anticipates and in fact buddy we're calling this conversation in the arena uh, because you've been in the arena you don't just talk about it uh, you've actually been there um, face those jurors eye to eye um, it's it's something totally different i always worry about <laughs> and i do some med mal and i'm always worried about in a medical malpractice case if a, a juror has a heart attack or the judge has a heart attack and the defendant doctor goes up and saves their life and then <laughs> you know my case is over i move for a mistrial hopefully it'll be granted well it's um, happened before things like mm-hmm. that have, have, have happened and and you just and one never never knows and that's the great thing about uh, trying cases and and that anything anything can can happen and of course um, in, every prosecutor at one time or another has been trying a case along and and his defendant takes off running uh, for the courtroom and uh, that's I've had that happen 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 a few times well, in um, your but but there's always something in your unexpected. example of the case with the guy that had the block on the meter um and basically i i would call that jury nullification right because the 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 charges that were given oh, to the, the jury he they, sh- they should have convicted but it was jury nullification don't you think that that just shows that a lot goes into 
jury deliberation, juror deliberations, and they all, in my opinion, most of the time get it right, and they have a sense of justice, but a sense of mercy also. That is correct, Robert. I don't think there's any doubt that that there's a fundamental fairness that the jury can provide that nobody else can provide. And sometimes the law uh, is perhaps uh, right, but it's not just. And I think I can never, I've lost plenty of cases, by the way. And, uh, and if you try enough cases, you, you, by the way, watch out for these people who talk tell you about how many cases they won because, <laughs> because that means they haven't tried, tried that many cases or only tried the sure things and, and so forth. And so that's one of the problems we got today, by the way, everybody wants a sure thing and a guaranteed result. And that's just not the, not the way, way it works. But I found out that, um, there are two things, there are two things that, um, in this country that we, we generally uh, don't always agree with, but we tend, we have to accept. And one is a jury verdict, and another is an election. And uh, because there's got to be a finality there. And I've always, uh, I've had many, many jury verdicts I've disagreed with, but number one that I didn't respect. One of the things we've asked all of our guests uh, I don't know if Lester asked you to be thinking about this. I, uh, uh, I did not. I did I not. I did yeah. not. And uh, but I, I, I'm I'm thinking you're going to get a good answer, Robin. I'm going to put the pressure. <laughs> on. Tur tur turn off the pressure on, Buddy. One of the things we've been asking everyone, Buddy, is uh, what is your definition of justice, or what is your notion? How would you define it, or your notion of justice? Well. I, I remember taking courses at the University of Georgia and, and uh, studying the philosophers and so forth and, and, and so on. And, and uh, you remember, I, I come pretty close to what uh, Plato said, is that justice requires that is done, which, which ought to be done. And that sounds somewhat simplistic, but it's not something that's, that's out there in a clear formula. And it's not anything that you can you can always define kind of like the Supreme Court justice said one time about pornography. Uh, I know it when I see it. And justice is kind of the same way in the, in that, um, in that every situation is different. And just because the law says this, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what ought to, ought to happen. And the jury comes about as close to justice as, as you're going, as you're going to find. And so, I think I'd just come back and say uh, justice is, is, what is what is the right thing uh, and was the right thing done. And that's, that's, that's very simple, but that's about the way I look at it. That's great. Thank you so much for being on with us uh, today, buddy. I, I've got to tell you, you know, you, you said, and it's certainly true, you don't plan out your career and things just happen. You know, when you, when you hired me when I was 21, 22 years old, it was because you got elected to Congress because a plane got shot down over the, the Sea of Japan. But uh, uh, for me, uh, going to work for you is probably the single uh, uh, most influential event that I've ever had in my 32-year 32, 32 career at the bar because it hooked me up with you. And all these experiences and things that you've told us about today, really just a small part of them, uh, I got to learn from your experience because you told me those stories. 
And uh, well, I just can't thank you enough. Thing about you. The most amazing thing about you, Lester, I was, I'll say it today and I'll say it again. I've never met a Georgia Tech graduate who could write, except for you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Uh, well, buddy, I, I've just enjoyed our time together and honestly could uh, spend another couple hours talking to you. Um, I hope maybe you'll consider coming back on the show later on and we'll pick up where we left off. Yeah, and the next time you, you and I, Robin, we'll we, we'll meet. We'll be having a cocktail together. So I look forward <laughs> that, to it. That, that sounds lovely. All right. Thank well, you, buddy. I'm still recording, Robin. I guess we have to cover a couple of other things. And, buddy, you can stay on, or or you yeah. can hang up. Whatever you want to do there. I just I just appreciate the opportunity to have a chance to talk with y'all. And yeah, uh, very nice. Robin, you give Bill our best. We just I so sure will. He's, Thank uh, you. He's doing better. Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye. So, uh, so we're going to give our, uh, our news items uh, right now. And of course, one of the things that we talk about frequently are lawyers and trials and things that uh, would be in the news media. And so one of the things that was in the news media on CBS this uh, uh, last week was about a lawyer and about a trial. And it was about a lawyer named Bill Clark, who I think you know, uh, Robin, uh, Robin's husband, uh, who unfortunately... Uh, came down with COVID-19, but uh, went to uh, the Emory clinical trial and entered the uh, clinical trial for remdesivir, uh, if I pronounced that, pronounced that correctly, um, and uh, triumphed uh, over COVID-19 is, is on the mend. And uh, I, I, I want to I bring that up because it doesn't involve a courtroom, but, uh, you know, lawyers, lawyers are people too. And for him uh, to be willing to go into that, that clinical trial at a time when he was uh, uh, really facing a very serious illness and could have chosen another path and could have chosen not to do it, uh, but did it for, uh, for others. And so that we would have that knowledge and know about that. And uh, he, he, he's always had my friendship and my respect and that respect's even heightened by this. But uh, it also highlights for me and for our podcast the kind of things that lawyers do outside the courtroom, outside the law office to try to help others. Thank you, Lester. And uh, fortunately, Bill uh, got healthy. Uh, He had some great care at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital, and we appreciate the nurses there who took such good care of him. He was there for about five days and finally released. Uh, still with no, pneumonia, uh, but well enough to come home. And it strikes me that we've seen so many people whose condition with COVID-19 uh, has turned the other way. It's turned worse, and they don't ever leave the hospital alive. And uh, so we're very thankful that he his health is restored, and, and uh, we appreciate we've just gotten so many uh, well wishes from friends and uh, we just appreciate it so much. Uh, the item I wanted to bring up um, is all over the news, um, and, it, and it tangentially involves the Ahmad Arbery shooting down in Glen County, Georgia. We've heard a lot about that, um, and it's ongoing. Um, and I say it ta- what I'm going to bring up tangentially uh, deals with the Ahmad Arbery shooting because it involves the same DA 
uh, Jackie Johnson. But uh, this week, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation reopened an investigation into the 1985 murders of Harold and Thelma Swain. Uh, given the fact that new DNA evidence that proves the person who was convicted of their murders uh, 30 some years ago, that man is named Dennis Perry. It proves he was not at the scene of the crime. Um, someone else did it. And the Innocence Project uh, started handling Mr. Perry's case. And my understanding is that the lawyer from the Innocence Project went to the DA. Uh, of Glen County, showed him the new evidence that Mr. Perry couldn't have been there, wasn't his DNA, uh, and they uh, refused to drop the case, said they were going to re-prosecute under a new theory or would continue under a new theory if he got a new trial. Uh, and yet once the shooting of Armad Arbery became front and center uh, in the news, that DA has apparently changed her mind and uh, is reconsidering their position on Mr. Perry. Um, but that, that, that is some striking, um, st striking evidence that, that the DNA evidence at the scene excludes the person who was convicted. Um, and I think Mr. Perry, again, at least deserves a new trial based on the new evidence. And we'll, we'll follow that and see what happens. That, that is an exciting story and, and a lot of great uh, investigative reporting by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on that as well. And uh, they're putting together, uh, give them a little plug here, I think they're putting together a little booklet or insert about the whole case. But uh, the Innocence Project uh, uh, has done a lot of great work uh, with cases like that and then a lot of good uh, investigative reporting and just a great example of uh, how uncovering the truth by the uncovering of the truth by lawyers and uh, by uh, the news media is something that's uh, very important. And both of those rights, uh, uh, both of those uh, professions work under the auspices of the United States Constitution's Bill of Rights. All right. Well, that does it for us today. And until we uh, see you again next time on this show, we will see you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.